this is Ash from Incutel, and I uh, just wanted to give a quick update before you launch into our podcast. Um, we were working on this project for a big chunk of the last year, and we recorded this podcast in December. And in the land of exciting, since that recording, industry terms have solidified to the point where we feel comfortable changing how we've branded this, this project from 3D World, which was kind of our umbrella term for all the possibilities that were out there, the proprietary ones like the Magic First, Facebook's Live Map, things like that. Were we going to go for the straight up AR cloud, spatial web? Um, we weren't sure yet. We were hoping it would be spatial computing would be the final title that would win out industry-wide to describe this phenomenon of technologies coming together. And awesomely, um, this January at CES, it became clear to a large swath of us that, yeah, spatial computing had won out. Um, and so uh, we just wanted to give that preamble, make sure you have both terms, and uh, enjoy the show. Maybe you've recently watched Ready Player One, a movie in which we get our first taste of what a 3D world looks like. Imagine if the entire world was such a game that you could play, and like any game, you could score points and you could win or lose. A world where perhaps everyone around you in your daily life is also somehow a player in a game. Or a world where people are color-coded based on their feelings, like a human mood ring. Or perhaps a world where you could gamify various tasks and reward people for completing them. The truth is, in some regard, we are already there, and we may not even know it. Welcome to another episode of the ICT Podcast. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesera, and on today's show, we talk about this concept of a 3D world and how it blends the real with the virtual and how it has already made its way into our lives, sometimes without us even knowing. I'm joined by two of my colleagues in the studio here, Andy Koo, who's on the investment team at Incutel and has spent a lot of time looking into this space and is an expert in the field. Also in the studio today, we have Ash Richter, who's an expert in the space and a technology architect at Incutel. She is also an archaeologist, anthropologist, engineer, and technologist whose work focuses on digitizing time and space to annotate and document reality. Andy, Ash, welcome and say hello. Excited to be here. Hi there. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's dive right in. Uh, 3D World. You know, this is the first time I'm hearing about such a concept, but it, I, I'm led to believe that I'm probably more familiar with this concept than, than, than I think. Tell me about what this means and why, uh, why this is of interest. So a 3D world is the concept of what happens when you digitize time and space. When there's a 3D map of the room that you're in, of the street that you're on, of the city that you're in, what can you do with it? Um, initial kind of research in this area was often looking at the end visualization for humans. What, what could we do if we could see it from afar and experience it in virtual reality, for instance? Um, but the kind of recent trends in technology over the last decade or so have pushed it towards what happens when that 3D map of the world is machine readable, when we can suddenly use it to um, make additional extrapolations or to digitally sync information into it so that if we can visualize it in context again, we now have this entire new analytical system that feeds us information and context and automates bits and pieces of our lives. And what, what sorts of different pieces are even, you know, newbie question, what kinds of pieces are we even talking about when it comes to fishing together this sort of uh, this real world with the virtual world? Are we talking about things that are, uh, you know, on the Internet? Are we talking about things that might be on our phones or things that our cars are seeing or doing on our behalf, as for example? What are some of the different places that we see elements of this world being stitched together? 
Um, I mean, right right now we're already kind of in terms of our our use of our phones for mapping, or in terms of how we get from point A to point B, or if um, anyone is playing Pokemon Go or similar games where we're using these location-based kind of mechanisms to um, power what and and what's happening in the game and and kind of how how we get points. Um, these kind of two-dimensional geospatial systems are essentially the core base of a three-dimensional variant that brings those things that you normally see through a display, through your phone, through a headset of some kind, through even your car's um, windshield and a heads-up display in some, in some variants of cars. Um, the notion is that those displays are just the current stepping stone on the way to a future thing. I think what your audience also Correct. might know is in addition to what's on your phone, what's been taking up a lot of the news cycles is around augmented and virtual reality. And this has been a technology that's been around for a while, but it's there's been a lot of interest over the past few years, especially after Facebook bought um, a virtual reality company called Oculus for, I think, $2 billion. And so um, there's a lot of interest in this area. However, I think what we're going to learn from the podcast is that AR, VR, and these glasses are just a small part of what we talk about with the world. Yeah, they're essentially a kind of one, one of the many confluence pieces that need to come together, um, that are coming together. Um, but it is one of the ones that, that kind of makes, makes it all a little more real at the end because when you view the end data that's co uh, correlated together as part of, of an annotated 3D space, that's often the place that you see it or experience. And as you mentioned, this concept of just uh, different dimensions, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in Ready Player One, what was really interesting to me was this concept of time that was associated with the additional, you know, the, the, the other dimension that people were, they could sort of fast forward and rewind through time. And, and that provides for sort of an interesting reality for the, the players in the game. Can you comment a little bit on how time might, might play into the way that 3D world is shaping up in, in, you know, in our world? Yeah, um, there's, there's something to be said for the rate at which we collect data. Um, right now. So if you can imagine a world where you kind of were only collecting super sparse bits of data, a photo here a century ago, even an oil painting before kind of a thing, and now now we have mass media collection on multiple scales, that those touch points, so having, having a digital touch point, a digital copy, and then multiple digital copies means that we, we could potentially rewind things. You could be... Um, in virtual reality, watching the recording of this podcast um, and kind of experiencing it as as an additional character in the space who couldn't interact with us, but you could watch us having this conversation um, or out on the streets in terms of having a, a copy, a, a timestamp essentially of buildings, of construction sites, of all of these um, places, you could stand in front of a location and essentially rewind rewind it through time and see that time lapse. So if you do that, if you if you multiply that over scale over centuries, you therefore have this really interesting possibility of um, an archive, of an experienceable archive of, of human activity. That's really fascinating. Andy, can you talk a little bit about where you're seeing uh, some really relevant hard hitting use cases for for the different parts of, of 3D world? Uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll sort of list a few domains here, you know, maybe in the retail space or something in gaming or tourism or, or Hollywood. Are, are there any particular areas that you're you're really keen on or you're interested in, in tracking? In terms of where 3D World uh, has come from and where it's going, I think uh, like many emerging technologies, it started off in the gaming space and in the inter entertainment space. 
And so even, you know, many decades ago, when you put on the, those 3D glasses to watch movies in 3D, you can argue that that was maybe the beginning of 3D world or some instantiation of 3D world. I think where we're going, though, is beyond this into some places that are quite exciting. Um, there's been a lot of conversations over the past few years around jobs and helping people get jobs and upskill for work and the situation that people are in in terms of not having, um, not having work. So we're starting to see um, VR and AR come into the space in terms of helping people with job training. And so, for example, you can imagine a scenario where you need to train for work, um, but you actually can't get to the place to actually be trained for work. So what can you do? You can train virtually. And so you can put on some um, AR or VR goggles and you can um, learn how to um, weld um, virtually or you can learn how to code virtually. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of um, interesting use cases where people can actually learn skills by not having to be where they typically needed to be in a classroom or in a job setting. And that's really exciting to us. Uh, in terms of retail, there's also some really interesting things happening in terms of mapping the human body uh, really rapidly so that you can digitally buy clothes without having to try them on and actually ensure the fit instead of buying them blind. Um, or the situation where, hey, you might not have something in stock in a store, but you can try it on in the store on the flip side and actually kind of see it in, in an augmented mirror um, or tweak it. Um, for wedding dresses, it's increasingly popular abroad as a mechanism for, for kind of redesigning what's going on there. Um, Another thing, especially in terms of mapping the body, there's also life-saving potentials for 3D world um, in two ways. One, you can train medical students um, virtually in terms of um, seeing a body inside and out. So we don't need cadavers anymore. Um, we can uh, do autopsies and, and learn about the body and anatomy virtually. The second is surgery. There are AR, VR surgeons who are able to um, not only virtually, but more precisely um, conduct surgery on bodies through AR, VR, um, and also show patients um, kind of their body and what's inside their body as they try to diagnose what's happening within their body. Yeah, I love the idea of walking into my doctor's office and my doctor's office knows it's me and that they have permission to flash up all of my medical scans and imagery layered and annotated on my physical form with a time sequence that my doctor can scroll through to both see what's going on and, and kind of explain to me. It's going to be seriously cool. It kind of reminds me actually when I was a little kid and we had those translucent flip books where every single oh, translucent yeah. page was, you know, the, the different systems in the body. So instead of having a 2D book, you have a 3D model virtual of your entire body. Um, I, and Build, building on this, um, there's something to be said also for remote collaboration on topics. Um, one of the initial places I was uh, coming across this arena was this notion of how do we digitize something remote, something that you can't bring many people to out in the middle of nowhere, um, something that or, or something that you can't correlate schedules to get everybody to, but if you can bring it to them, if you can digitize a location or some remote piece of infrastructure that needs to be fixed, you can bring in expertise from afar and either have them uh, collaborating with you while you're in situ in the middle of nowhere um, from the safety and, and comfort of their offices wherever they are in the world, um, or how do you bring it back with you to a different location and have everybody work on it there as a digital copy of itself, as a digital twin. I think what's super fascinating for our, uh, collaboration, as Ash said, is to bring another sci-fi um, analogy. We, I think many of us know about teleportation 
And we've seen this in the movies, we've seen this in Star Trek, and everybody's trying to figure out, okay, how, how do we teleport people? And in fact, with 3D World, you don't need to teleport people. You don't need to be physically somewhere else. You can bring that other thing back to where you are. So in a case where you are remotely collaborating, you don't need to teleport to another meeting room. You can bring that meeting room back to where you are virtually. And that's super exciting to see one vision of sci-fi being replaced by another vision of sci-fi. Uh, this is the uh, Kingsman telephone call. The augmented reality telephone call is a great example of this, um, whereby the, the kind of main characters walk into what seems to be an almost empty room with one other person at a board table. They sit down. They put on um, augmented reality glasses, and suddenly the room, the seats at the table are actually populated by different agents who knows where in the world, but they've all come together to sit around the same table. I love both Kingsman movies, actually. I was going to make the same comment. Sci-fi uh, That's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the technology landscape. Both... Uh, you, both of you spent a lot of time researching and looking into uh, different parts of, of, of industry that are taking advantage of, you know, small bits and pieces of this concept of the 3D world. Uh, can you comment a little bit about where you're seeing the most uptake or the most spend in technology or the most uptake in the technology uh, and how that's sort of shaping the future of 3D world? Um, I think in terms of uh, the mixed reality space, this is one place where a lot of people are starting to experience it. I think one of the really exciting things that's happening right now is the 2D geospatial arena starting to work more and more with 3D data and how to figure out how to, um, it's called co-register the data sets together. So you have a sort of 2D base map, but then you have the 3D buildings built into the, into the map or, or kind of the layers on top of those. And um, how do you then take the movements of people through that space and then layer those into the 3D building kind of a thing. So that confluence of the data sets, that's often really excitingly happening in a space uh, often referred to as the AEC, Architecture, Engineering, and Construction, um, because it, it optimizes costs in terms of how do you design a building? Well, if you can take people out to show them the building in situ um, as a virtual copy, people can argue about it then and there. They don't have to build off of it and then be like, whoops, we actually didn't love that. Um, and in terms of operations and maintenance and upkeep of these buildings, this also is is kind of a it's, it's very useful. It saves a lot of money. It saves a lot of time to do this for buildings, for infrastructure like transit systems and, um, and roadways and things like that. So there's, there's some interesting push happening from there. Um, this is a, that's also an arena that's traditionally collected a lot of 3D data. People like to have 3D models of their buildings for various purposes. Um, so, so it's a great spot. Um, airports, I think, are another kind of subcategory of this that this is happening frequently in. They, you want to know what's happening in the airport. Everybody who works at the airport, the security of the airport, this matters a lot in these spaces, getting people flowing through it quickly, getting people to the optimized arena, figuring out how to even get them to the shopping stations. Those kind of flows can be better analyzed if you put all those data sets together and, and um, run scenarios and simulations across them. In terms of on the money side, where we're seeing a lot of interest and the dynamics in the market, um, I'll just cite a few stats. In 2010, venture capitalists invested in about 20 companies, 20 companies in this 3D world space. Um, that number has ballooned to close to 400 investments in 2018, which translates to about $3 billion. Um, those seem like very large numbers, and the growth is um, quite impressive. However, what's important to note is that um, just a few companies took in the lion's share of investments, 
one company called Magic Leap, they're a VR goggles company. Um, another company called Unity, they're a game engine. Um, so there's a handful of companies that are attracting most of the dollars. So the, the takeaway from this is, although there's a lot of excitement and a lot of interest and a lot of VC dollars that are flowing into 3D World, um, it's still very, very young. Um, and there's still a lot of upside yet to be had. Let's talk about uh, something that's really interesting to me real quickly, smart cities. Um, I always envision smart cities as being these like very efficient, really cool sort of stuff, like very slick places like in Minority Report when you're walking around and there's highly targeted ads that only you can see that come up in front of you. Uh, not Maybe that's a dystopian view of the future, but nonetheless, how does the 3D world concept play into the evolution of the development of smart cities? Spot on. Um, this is essentially what it takes to get to a city that is actually smart. Um, and uh, you, you need to map it out. You need to have this 3D datascape of entangled systems, um, not just the baseline sensors, but the sensors embedded into um, a 3D landscape that is constantly being updated, that is constantly being pinged with different simulations and scenarios to optimize everything from... Um, traffic flow through to um, the, the data flow that would be needed to populate the kind of advertising uh, walkway that you're describing with the AR ads, which, to be honest, is probably something we will end up with, but I think we'll end up with a lot of really interesting kind of uh, self-sovereign identity data things that mitigate that and, and make sure that personalization is actually something we want. We want some of those annotations. When I'm walking down a city... It drives me crazy that I don't know everything about all the, the history of the spots that are there as I'm walking past. Um, you, you should, you, just like our social media feeds today, you can plan and optimize them so that they show you the things that you're interested in. And, and that kind of flow will, will only happen if you have something like 3D World as its bottom engine. When it comes to smart cities, I think one thing to look out for is Dubai next year. They're going to essentially map out for the World's Fair in 2020 um, the, the entire World's Fair in Dubai, and they're going to make it not only for those who are there experience um, kind of mixed reality within within that physical setting, but if you can't fly all the way to Dubai to attend the World's Fair, you can also experience it from your room through some glasses or through your through your laptop. So we're starting to see some really interesting things where cities themselves are kind of going all in and experimenting with this area. I'm, I'm recalling my uh, recent holiday weekend. Uh, I wasn't. I was unable to go to the Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, in New York. However, I was able to use my phone and log into, you know, what's seemingly what's some sort of 360 degree camera and get like a street level view of, of of the live parade. I thought that was really neat. As an aside, can you comment, Ash, on you know what kind of orchestration do it does needs to be in place? In other words, what kinds of infrastructure do we need to have in place to even make sense of all the different places that data is coming in from? munging it together and making it something that a consumer or someone living in a city would care for or find valuable. It seems like a really big, a big problem. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, and I, I think it's one that we're all going to be struggling with for, for a bit of time now. Um, I think you can kind of divide it into two, two sections. There's the actual um, mapping itself, the 3D data um, and what it's doing and, and how, how you know where things are, whether they range from the visual annotations and augmented reality or um, where you are in the system. But then on top of that, there's this ambient intelligent landscape piece that you're identifying uh, as, as the smart cities. Um, and, and that's the activity on top of it. So not just where you are, but what you're doing and what you're engaging with. Where do you stop? Where do you, where do you go? Um, and so in, in dividing those pieces, I think the, 
the ambient intelligence piece is still to come. I think there's a, a lot more um, that needs to kind of go into there before I feel like I, I feel like talking about it. That's actually going to be our next kind of research binge. But um, in terms of uh, the mapping piece, right now that means everybody kind of needs to get their mapping act together. Right now, a lot of the, the pieces of information are in massive silos. And similar to the kind of 2D geospatial revolution before, um, a big part of that was everybody aggregating their maps, figuring out how to um, not just authenticate them and standardize them and standardize how they're talking to each other and how you layer information on them, but also even where are they? Um, it seems so easy to us now that we can just open an app on our phone and pull up a map of where we are, but that was not the case until relatively recently. And I think that's one of the really fascinating things about studying technology and the rollout of technology and how something becomes ubiquitous in society is how rapidly we forget that we didn't used to have this piece of it um, and how far it seems to the next leap. But in reality, it's it's not even been 20 years since, since the 2D geospatial revolution really kicked off. Um, and I think it's worth noting there within the podcast context, um, Incutel's role in that 2D geospatial revolution and how um, Incutel's investment in a company called Keyhole um, and our kind of fussing at them to, to standardize into a markup language called keyholemarkuplanguage.kml kind of paved the way to some of that. They were acquired by Google. Um, the language itself was, was both something Google used to do um, to set up Google Earth and subsequently Google Earth Engine. And .kml kind of became the base language that everybody jumped off of. And it's still one of the main packaging languages. So um, we, we played a pivotal role in that revolution. I think um, we can and should try to do the same for this 3D world, this spatial computing landscape that's evolving. You're right. I mean, if we think about just the time that's elapsed between that investment and today, you know, blink of, a, blink of an eye in terms of human history, right? And the amount of progress that's been made. I'm very excited to see what the next blink of the eye yields for us in the next 15 or 20 years in this regard. Uh, Andy, you and I spent a little bit of time talking about autonomy in a previous podcast, which I encourage all of our listeners to check out on our website. Could you talk just briefly about how you know that concept of autonomy fits into uh, our, our discussion today about, about the 3D world? The tie-in between autonomy and the 3D world is interesting because at the end of the day, autonomy largely is driven by maps. Uh, a car needs to know where it's going to go based on mapping information that it receives. So where does it get this mapping information? Or it's got to take, take these physical mapping locations and digitize it first, which gets fed into the AI engine to pad the car. And so this digitization of the maps is exactly what Ash was talking about before. Um, so we're seeing a lot of interest in autonomy um, and, and the interest that's being driven into 3D world because of the convergence of these two technologies. And let's talk about synthetic data. Uh, so when we think about you know, any sort of machine learning use case, uh, the first thing that comes to people's minds is good quality training data to, to get your classifiers or your models to work properly. Uh, can you tell us about how synthetic data, or just training data in general, maybe in, in synthetic data, uh, integrate into this concept of the proliferation of the 3D world? Yeah, um, actually, I'm, I'm kind of particularly excited about this, this space and potential in terms of where this will go in the future. So uh, right now, synthetic data is, is more used to augment systems um, because we, we don't have enough data to train it for outlying situations. So for instance, with the, um, uh, the infamous car examples, we, we can't constantly pose little children in, in danger and kind of take lots of pictures of them in the car versus each other to, to, train, to train the car, don't hit the child. 
Um, so you can augment that with sort of gaming simulations of the same thing and, and go from there. Um, something that I think is really neat with the 3D World stuff is that right now we're, we're using the game engines to create the synthetic data, but once we're doing enough image capture itself of our reality around us, we ourselves become the training data for scenarios. Um, and so I think that's kind of really neat that if, if everything comes together, there's the potential for all of our daily activities themselves, um, whether they be outliers or not, to flow together to be training for future AI systems we can't even imagine at this point. We started our, our podcast today with a quick nod to Ready Player One. During the course of our conversation, we talked about Kingsman also. Uh, I'm curious, how does Hollywood play into both sort of, you know, the, the directions in which the 3D world are going and how we as consumers of entertainment uh, can expect to benefit from, from their, the developments there? I think Hollywood often sets the vision and paints the vision for, for what the world can be um, in the same ways that entrepreneurs also set a vision and paint a vision for where the world can, can be. And so what's really interesting, actually, the dynamic that we're seeing in 3D world um, is whether we'll see a world where people are going to be using goggles to experience immersive technologies or without. Um, and so we didn't talk about holograms, but holograms have been in Hollywood movies for many, many years. And there's a strand of entrepreneurs who have said, you know what, everybody thinks that for 3D World, everybody needs to put on goggles for this. And they are revolting against this and saying, you know what, we imagine a different world in the same way that Hollywood has said we can have holograms. And so we're starting to see entrepreneurs build out holograms where you can interact with digital content so you don't need glasses for. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, even within the 3D world, there are different visions for what the world will look like. And it's really exciting to us to make bets on, on different versions of what this world might look like. Yeah, and That's I, fascinating. I think there's also a lot to be said for, um, given that Hollywood's been imagining this space for so long, um, there, there's a lot of groups that have been poking at, at what it should look like in all these various forms. And so there are some definitely interesting, there are definitely some interesting companies popping up out of Hollywood, the Hollywood spaces, the gaming spaces, that I think wouldn't, uh, wouldn't otherwise. Um, but this is where the experience is coming from, and so this is where the companies are coming from, which is really, really neat. Because I think there's a lot to be said for the storytellers of our society driving, not just driving the vision, but also making the vision happen. So I think that's really fascinating. So in talking about holograms, you know, you, you basically can create a, a, an image of, of pretty much anyone or anything that you want and have it exist uh, so people in the, in the real world can see it. Uh, I'd like to shift our, our, the focus of our discussion to, you know, things to consider, because I think this opens up like a can of worms for, for us as a society when it comes to, uh, you know, ethical concerns, moral concerns, perhaps uh, privacy and stuff like that. Um, Ash, what do you think in general, a big open-ended question, take it where you want, where, what do you think the, the growth of the 3D world concept uh, and, and its consumption, what does it mean for society in general? Uh, what are some of the things that we should be concerned with or ask ourselves about as we engage with this more and more? I think ultimately it's a very good thing for society. It's, it's a way for everyone to be a bit closer, for everyone to work together to optimize their daily life and to spread um, the kind of uh, empathy that I, I think we need more of in society. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think ultimately um, bringing everyone together into an interoperable system, I think that is a very good thing. I think it leads to a lot of optimization and a lot of um, 
better living conditions, essentially, across, across the entire planet. I think on the flip side, though, it does mean a lot of concern over um, data privacy and data ownership and, and how can someone participate in a system that's constantly, to a certain degree, watching you um, and, and kind of give, give away part of, part of your information in order to even access the larger infrastructure of society around you. So I think there's a lot that will need to be worked out in terms of um, privacy permissions, but also in terms of how an individual owns the rights to their own information. Not in terms of, of how, how they give it away, but also um, how they even store and, and access it themselves. I love the notion of a permanent digital record. Like, you know, at school they would sort of threaten you, like, oh, this is going to go in your permanent record, and it's terrifying. But actually, that, that would be a very useful thing to have for our own peace of mind growing up. I would love to look at my artwork from when I was little and to have had that digitized and to have that be a part of my own personal digital experience. Um, but just like I, I, in terms of making that content, me giving away that content or me giving away the, the information that I, I am doing something or I am buying something or I am participating in the system, that should be something that the participant gets a cut of. Um, so I think this also has a really interesting potential for a data economy to kind of be built around around this kind of engagement. Um, but I, th I think a lot of the policy things happening with respect to even basic mapping um, for autonomous vehicles will be a big driver in terms of how far anyone's willing to go to map out your individual homes and share that information. The idea of, of digital memories is also really interesting because I think it gets down to the question of what is real. And especially now when there's a lot of conversations about what is real, what is fake, um, you know, at the end of the day, those who dictate history make history. And so those who can actually say, I'm going to digitize this thing and put in my digital memory, and that essentially becomes history and that becomes reality, whether it's actually true or not, I think we'll be grappling with those questions as we go forward as well. Uh, China actually had a really interesting kind of push in terms of policy development. Um, they, they set policy in motion to address specifically deep fakes in traditional media formats. Um, so how can I, if, if I'm watching a video, how do I know the video is real and that it's not a synthesized version of that human? Um, but the, the policy is actually broad enough that it sets in place the same kind of authentication mechanism need for uh, a virtual reality memory experience or, um, or being able to, to scroll back through time on a building or through my own personal digital record. How do I know that that was what was there if I've forgotten it myself and somebody swooped in and changed it on me? How do I know it was changed? Um, so, so yeah, I think digital memory is, is going to be both a really big and really cool piece of it, but also um, has some potential and for needing some crazy, crazy cool security. Yeah, I'll put a shameless plug in for, uh, for our colleagues at I think you can lab. They're right now in the midst of figuring out how best to leverage, you know, watermarking techniques to, you know, ensure authenticity of content or to detect things that might be fake. Um, so there's certainly a lot of interesting work being done that regard, I think, all over. Uh, Ash, you touched a little bit on something that's really fascinating, this concept of human identity and how it may, um, you know, how our current understanding of human identity ourselves sort of evolves or changes as we enter into the, this, this 3D world concept. Uh, any comments from either of you on just, you know, you had to sort of take a guess as to, what, you know, what, what may change as we sort of perceive ourselves in this world? Are we, are we going to have different identities altogether? Will, be, will we have some blending of our real into the 3D world or will we just have avatars of ourselves and multiples of that so that we become multiple or like, you know, people or things in, in, a, in a separate space? Um, I think it will be really 
awesome in terms of its ability to convey more. Um, in terms of me being able to convey my mood to you with a color aura, or um, if I if I don't want to come in in my actual physical form, but instead have have a chosen avatar kind of a thing, I think it will let us slip in details about ourselves that will help people engage with each other um, without it being as tricky or political or difficult as it as it is today. Um, I think especially for groups, neurodivergent groups, I think that will be especially useful. Andy, you, as you were looking across, you know, from the investment side of things, we, we talked about you know specific domains and industries that are that are currently leveraging or defining sort of directions here. But uh, any comments from you know the international front or, or other other uh, countries that are doing things that are of relevance and of interest uh, in the 3D worldscape? I think most of the interesting work internationally is being done on the visualization side. Um, we talked a little bit about Dubai and how they're going to build out the World's Fair out there. Um, there's also, and Ash knows this because she worked there, um, there's a lot of um, kind of digitization of World Heritage sites um, around the world. And so, um, as Ash, Ash can talk about this much better than I can, um, but as archaeologists and the work that they do there. Um, and I, I think that's often one of the places people will see some of this roll out in terms of an annotated landscape sooner rather than later because it's something that people can agree they all want to know more on. It's a system to opt in on. And so I think the potential um, economy for tourist-themed companies to kind of come in and figure out how to template these out for heritage sites would be just really cool and really useful. Um, but yeah, the, the, the places that are collecting a lot of 3D data already I think are going to be the winners, the places that are focusing on the smart city concept will also kind of push forward. I think the ones that are doing both um, have an even greater potential to move forward faster. Um, but I think like with all of these things, um, groups without relevant policy or flexibility of their policy to adapt to both um, the data sharing required, uh, I think that's going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. As we think through this concept of being engaged uh, early, both as like you know a business or or maybe even as a consumer, uh, I'm thinking through the different avenues that this may occur. So we have you know internet, social media, mapping, spatial computing. Um, in your opinion, what does it mean to be engaged early, and why is it important in general to to sort of get involved in the conversation now as opposed to sort of waiting for the technology to figure its way and then getting involved later, uh, both from the perspective of a consumer or a business? I think one really interesting area for consumers is this idea of community collaboration and connectivity. And oftentimes we hear about those terms when it comes to social media 2.0 um, with social networks. But as we talked about earlier in the podcast, with the ability to transport ourselves to different places or have other places to transport our, to us, um, be able to experience things virtually, that brings a whole new dimension of being able to interact with other people in ways that we were we have not been able to interact with before, and so I think um, I think we will start seeing tremendous amounts of community result um, from 3D World and, and us being able to zoom around the world virtually and interact with people from around the world. And do you get the sense that you know as we think through the data landscape today, uh, we we often hear the quips of you know data silos or proprietary data. A lot of these companies build a lot of big companies build their uh, their businesses around you know very protected uh, data sets that you know you never want to share because that gives away sort of your secret sauce. 
Um, in order for 3D World to be useful or for it to grow in a way that is conducive to you know businesses and consumers, do you envision that that paradigm should shift? Uh, Ash, you mentioned the concept of some being able to collaborate, you know, on, on shared data sets and being able to build something greater through this sort of this combination of small pieces. Uh, do you anticipate the, the thinking there to change, or will we sort of have more of the same thinking and, and it will likely hinder the growth of the 3D world? Ooh, that is a big and terrifying question. Um, I think it's going to need to shift. Um, I think this notion of data kingdoms is is one of the things that's holding up even the smart cities uh, concept right now because. While people are focusing on how to make certain systems smart, often they're not focusing on even how to connect the basic data silos they have between themselves, the cityscape, the cityscape, its citizens, the the contractors and and groups that work in those spaces, let alone the businesses. Um, so I, I think there is going to have to be a stronger communication mechanism between them, whether it's entirely smashed to pieces. Um, and all the data kingdoms are go are gone in favor of a giant like uh, Star Trek Federation kind of thing. I I uh, I don't know. One can hope. Let's talk about the evolution of our personal assistants. So, uh, and what I mean is things like uh, the devices in our homes or in our cars or on our phone that respond to our voice. So I certainly have a bunch of hardware in my house that you know plays music for me, tells me about the weather, maybe tells me about the news, reminds me that I have a package downstairs, turns the lights on and off. And this is all done with me just talking to this thing that exists in my house or this, you know, this receiver in my car, for example. Uh, how does 3D World evolve these, these, these means in which we interact with hardware in our home? Uh, is it going to get better and more interesting? Will it be more visual? How, how do you, you know, if you had to make a guess, where would things go? Uh, yeah, no, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, the concept of 3D World of spatial computing means that these systems have eyes. Um, instead of just ears, it means they're able to participate and anticipate your needs even before you might even have had a chance to indicate your needs to them. Um, it means uh, it'll know that you just drank the last of the milk and, hey, you've told it, go ahead and buy me more milk if that's the case. And an autonomous drone will bring you milk and it'll just be there before you've even kind of properly realized you're out of milk. Um, so it, it has a huge potential to, to optimize our own flows within our houses, how we do things, how we get chores done. Um, there's also the potential for a lot of gamification there. Um, there are a couple of really great um, pieces of art from a couple of years ago that look specifically at, at um, how you gamify cooking and how do you teach people cooking by having these visual components to show you where to cut and how fast to cut and how to give you points if you're doing it right and you're properly julianning something. Having said that, I'm not even sure what julianning is, but I know it's a kitchen word. Um, but yeah, it's, oh, it was, it's, it's the difference between your Roomba kind of blindly running around the room and getting to Rosie the maid. Um, Rosie needs to know from the Jetsons, Rosie the maid from the Jetsons. Um, Rosie needs to know what's in the room, how things are interacting in the room, where are you in the room, and, and what do you need on top of that. And these things can be extrapolated from, well, you need a couple of different systems running, but you definitely need them to be able to see what's happening. So this is that computer vision piece. Mm -hmm. Do I need to be concerned with a camera that is uh, always watching me? Uh, and I asked from the perspective of just uh, anybody in society that, that, that chooses to have one of these devices. Right now, I think we've, you know, we have various states of acceptance of these microphones that are listening to us in our home, for, for example. Uh, does the worry become 
uh, larger or greater to stay the same when we have eyes, you know, camera sensors in our home from, from what you, from what you can tell. I think the pervasiveness of cameras of, of sensing, um, is going to be something people are going to struggle with, to be honest. I think we're still struggling even with, um, the audio functions in homes and, and cameras occasionally on the street or elsewhere. So I think that is going to be a big point of, uh, concern for society. It's going to be a big hurdle that people have to get over. Ash and Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, before we leave, I wanted to give a nod uh, or sense of direction to our listeners on where they could learn more. Uh, what are your thoughts? When it comes to 3D World, what's the best way to learn more and get, get caught up to speed on things that are happening? Um, well, one, um, use your technology. Use use your Alexa. Use, use Google Maps and, and um, all of these different mapping pro- programs, play some games, Pokemon Go, um, things along those lines. But even more so, look at the media of, of the past um, and even the mythology before that and, and the way we as society and our storytellers have asked to be able to engage with the world. So um, check out movies like um, Avatar or Prometheus for the kind of 3D visualization systems. I love... I don't love the movie Prometheus, but I love what it does with visualization there where they have these beautiful little gold LIDAR balls that they throw, and then it live maps everything and then cross-projects it into um, uh, the, the other spaceships so that everyone there can watch everyone moving around the, the alien world and figure out what's happening. Um, but then imagine that is, that's just the, the permanent state of things. Um, or Avatar and Hunger Games both have some great visualization systems of how do you watch people move, moving through these landscapes or how do you annotate stuff um, within them. Uh, Ready Player One, like you referenced before, is great, both in terms of it, it itself is set in the Oasis, this, this really complex virtual world that people can, can be entirely different people in, but at the same time hidden within the movie version of it. It's not in the book, but it is in the movie there's this great digital memory bit where they're going into the creator of the o- Oasis's memories and watching it play out live as if it w- as if they were just behind the glass of a museum exhibit. And I recall a handful of Black Mirror episodes that have this concept, this recurring concept yeah. of uh, a, play, a playback memory. Exactly. Um, um, or even, even synthesizing people from memory. You have that great Miley Cyrus one in the latest season where they're just able to right. copy her. Um, because they, right. she was making enough data for them to do that. Andy, any other recommendations? I think a lot of the kind of movies and TV shows that Ash talked about were revolved around people kind of going to different worlds and being immersed in different worlds and seeing different worlds. Reminds me of both a book and a movie, A Wrinkle in Time, um, where the protagonists were able to go to different worlds and transport themselves to different worlds. And in one of the worlds, they got stuck in a 2D world. And so they were 3D creatures and they're 3D people and they got almost smashed to death because they went to a 2D world. And so I think the promise for um, 3D world is the ability to transport yourself into different worlds, other 3D worlds, um, and not get smashed along the way. So it sounds like the homework here is watch more movies, which I think we can all appreciate uh, as being the best kind of homework ever. Ash and Andy, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very fascinating conversation. To our listeners, thank you for listening. You can find this podcast and all the rest of our podcasts at the IGT.org website or wherever you consume your podcast. Uh, thanks to Carrie and Kristen in the studio for being our producers. And a very special thank you to Hardcast Media for letting us use their facilities and their hardware to record our podcast. This has been an episode of the IGT Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Santacera. Till next time, take care. 